What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am so excited to be bringing to you the story of Elvis Presley. I never expected this to happen, okay? I just saw the movie probably about a week ago, the new film about Elvis Presley, and it completely shattered everything that I ever once had thought about Elvis before. I always thought he was a bit of a novelty. We, we imagine him in like his flashy jumpsuits with the long sideburns and the dance moves and the things like that, but like you don't really actually think about the person behind all the glitz and the glamour. This film genuinely made me look at Elvis as the man that was born in Tupelo, Mississippi and his life story. Um, so this is easily the most fun that I've ever had in researching for a person and their story. Genuinely, I'm really, really, really excited to share with you guys today the story of Elvis Presley. So he was born January 8th, 1935 in Tupelo, Mississippi. His parents were Vernon and Gladys Presley. So what's really interesting about Elvis is he was actually a twin. His older brother, Jesse, he was born stillborn. And then about 30 minutes later, Elvis Aaron Presley was born. Can you imagine like Elvis's twin walking around? That would have been too much. People have said over the years that, you know, Elvis was born with the strength of two of two men. The birth almost actually killed both his mother and Elvis. No painkillers, by the way, just straight up giving birth to twins. It's craziness. Uh, so his mother and Elvis were rushed to the hospital immediately after Elvis was born. The Presleys were not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, at least not at this point in the timeline. They were very poor. Uh, they were living in very poor conditions. So they didn't have a lot of money to support their family. And Tupelo back in the day was one of the roughest places in Mississippi to grow up. They had to get help from the church and help from the neighbors to provide basic necessities for the baby and for the family, you know, things like that. You know, their house had no plumbing or electricity. We're talking basic stuff here. You know, they also had to rely on welfare to pay the doctors that delivered Elvis as well. In 1938, Elvis's father, Vernon, was sent to jail for forging a $4 check from his workplace. Unfortunately, Elvis kind of grew up in that moment without a father, which I assume would have been really difficult. At four years old, Elvis overheard his parents arguing about money. And this is just, you know, Elvis as a, as a toddler. It's crazy enough. And he told his parents, like, hey, mom and dad, don't worry about it. One day I'm going to buy you guys a Cadillac. So don't even worry about the money right now. His father was released a year later in 1939 for good behavior. Thankfully, it wasn't that long. The family would end up, you know, moving from place to place to find permanent living. It was really difficult to support themselves in that time. And Elvis was raised pretty much in the church. He really enjoyed going to church. He enjoyed the sermons, but he mostly enjoyed the gospel uh, choir that was in the church. This is where he would take one of his main inspirations, gospel music, and he would really learn to run with it as well as R&B music at the time, uh, country music at the time. Like those three particular genres were the three that shaped his formative years and helped him in the long run in his music career. In 1945, when Elvis was in school, one of his teachers overheard him singing one day, and she was so impressed that she took him to the principal and said, Elvis, 
sing, <laughs> sing for the principal. And he said, okay. So he sang to the principal and the principal suggested that Elvis enter into a talent show at school. And this would kind of be a thing in his life as well with school. Everyone knew him to be the boy that like sang and was really talented and he would enter into these talent shows. So yeah, he was very gifted from a very early age. In October the 3rd, 1945, Elvis sang to his first crowd at 10 years old at the Mississippi-Alabama Fair, and he was broadcast on the local radio station. On his 11th birthday, Elvis wanted either a rifle, because he was really big on guns, and this was the South at the time, so he was big on guns, and he either wanted a gun or a bicycle, but his parents said, you know what, that's a bit too much we'll give you a guitar instead. So Elvis was gifted his very first guitar. So after some time, Elvis started coming into his teen years. The Presley family decided that Mississippi was no longer where they needed to be, that they had outgrown Mississippi and there was nowhere else that they could make money in Mississippi. So they decided to move to Memphis to start a new life which was a really, really big decision at the time. Imagining just packing your whole life into one little car and you move all the way to Memphis, just hoping and praying that you'll land a job that'll support the family and it'll be the right decision. So they were kind of just giving it up to the universe, hoping that this would be the right choice and this ended up being the best choice. So the family, this is kind of another thing as well. Until Elvis became Elvis Presley, as we know him, and purchased Graceland, before that, his family were living on not so great means. When they moved to Memphis, they moved into this public assisting apartment complex called Lauderdale Courts. And this was predominantly a black neighborhood and they were the only white family in this black neighborhood. And that's important to the story as well. Like I think a lot of people, when they think of Elvis Presley, they think about uh, maybe the trope, if you will, that Elvis kind of had his career built off the backs of black musicians and he was no more than like a parody of them. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think we need to redefine Elvis and how he stood for music and his musical inspirations and how he actually was supporting black artists and he loved them very much. I mean, he would defy what was normal back in the day. Elvis was always drawn to black music. You know, he was raised on, you know, black music and gospel music and R&B music. He was just so taken by the spirituality that came with it and how the music moved through your soul when you would play R&B and gospel music. And he would always hang out on this street in Memphis called Beale Street, which is like um, a strip, if you will, of pubs and clubs and music venues that would frequent black artists and black musicians. And Elvis would be there all the time. One of the first jobs that Elvis got in Memphis was being a cinema usher. So obviously he would like help people into the movie theaters and like give them their tickets and assist them to the right like theater and things like that. And right, you know, near the cinema were some clubs and pubs and gigs and venues that would host black artists. So he would go there all the time to listen and to watch and enjoy and be taken aback by it. Like this is a great time in music history for black artists to really come about and make a stand for themselves. Uh, so Elvis really was starting to make friends with all of these people and, and learn from them. It just became a big part of him and his life. And it always had been up until his last day. Uh, so Elvis really began to flourish in Memphis. Memphis was like, I think, the place that he really 
really came into his own the most. This is where he started to experiment with his hair and with his clothing. This is like, you know, the 50s in in American history, you know, that Americana kind of rockabilly moment, right? Where back in the day, men were seen as they had to be clean cut, good boys. Elvis was the complete opposite to every single one of them. And that was normal back then. He wore his hair long. He started wearing eyeliner around his eyes. He started wearing uh, more interesting fabrics and clothing options. And his favorite color combination to wear was pink and black. He would wear lace shirts. He would wear um, loose slacks. And he would wear these awesome like letterman jackets and these amazing blazers. And then he also started dyeing his hair black. Elvis is a natural blonde, like a dirty blonde maybe, but he's a natural blonde. So Elvis decided to dye his hair black because the story goes, someone told him because he had striking blue eyes, that if he had black hair, it would draw more attention to his features because he was a very attractive man. He thought, okay, that's an interesting concept, but um, also... Off of that, too, some people think that Elvis dyed his hair black as well to mimic the style of his favorite superhero, which at the time was Captain Marvel Jr. And if you look at pictures of Captain Marvel Jr., which came out around the time Elvis was in his teens, you can easily see where he could have gotten that idea from. So Elvis started completely changing the scene in 100%. So he was standing out like a sore thumb amongst everyone else for the simple facts alone that he was changing his physical appearance to reflect how he felt on the inside. But also he was hanging around, you know, black musicians and black artists and, you know, places frequented by black musicians. And that was seen as not cool back in the day for a white person to do. So one of the more serious jobs that Elvis would take on after he kind of uh, left his cinema ushering job was he began going into driving trucks for a company called Crown Electric in 1953, and he would end up getting a $4 advance on his paycheck. Elvis takes this $4, and he went over to the Memphis Recording Service to cut his very first single, and this ends up being Sun Records. It's said in two different ways. It's said that Elvis wanted to cut a single because he wanted to surprise his mother for her birthday and give her a recording of his voice. But some people really believe that he was starting to really understand himself, that he wanted to be a serious musician, and that he wanted to do it just to hear himself, just to see if he had, like, the, the singing chops, you know, how he, how he compared to his favorite singers at the time. He really wanted to get noticed and to see where he compared in the rankings with other singers at the time. So when he came in there, there was the assistant. She said, okay, you want to cut a record? That's fine. You know, who do you sound like? You know, do you sound like anyone in particular that we would know? And he said, no, ma'am, I don't sound like nobody. You know, he only sounds like himself, right? So she's like, okay, I guess I'll cut you your single. So she cuts the single for him and he asked her, hey, do you have anyone looking for uh, a singer? You know, I would love to join. And she said, no, but we'll let you know. So he was hopeful that eventually he would get picked up. So he paid his $4 and he went about for the next year driving trucks, hoping for a break in the music scene. Well, little did he know that on June 26, 1954, he would get his call from Sun Records. 
Uh, so Sam Phillips, he was flipping through singles that were recorded at Sun Records, and he would try to find singers. The thing about Sam Phillips at the time was he was specifically looking for white singers that sounded black. So he was looking for the Bobby Caldwell effect, basically. If you know Bobby Caldwell, I did a podcast episode on him. He's white, but he sounds like he's black. And there was this single that was recorded at Sun Records by by an unknown artist. Sam did not know who this person was. And he thought, wow, this song is great. But he had a hard time finding who this person was. Uh, and then he heard Elvis come in and he was like, wait a minute, Elvis, he's white and he sounds black. That's crazy. So he called Elvis and he said, hey, I have a single here. I want to hear if you can sing this record for me. So can you come down at the studio by three? And as soon as they hung up the phone, he was already at the door. So he was very keen to get in there and to record and to see Sam. So he was very, very, very excited. So he went in there and he met with Sam for a moment uh, for a spell. And then later on down the road, he got called back again to the studio on July 5th. Now, this was a more serious endeavor because now Sam was serious about bringing Elvis in and actually recording his first profitable single, right? So the recording sessions, he was there with some session musicians. And, uh, you know, the day was dragging on and they weren't really finding songs that were working. They, it, it just wasn't really happening. The flow was not really there. So they were considering taking a break for the day and leaving and packing up um, until Elvis kind of picked up his guitar and started strumming. That's all right, little mama. That's all right with you. And this is a tune by Arthur Crudup, which is one of his favorites at the time. And this was a really popular song. People said at this time that he was like flogging on the guitar. He was playing the song at a fast pace and he just had this electricity run through him. The session musicians were like, all right, this is the energy that we needed. So they joined in and Sam was like, hey, whatever you're doing, like keep on doing it. Like this is working. So they finally like broke through and they recorded their very first single, That's All Right. And then the B-side to that was um, a song that Elvis really enjoyed at the time, which was called Blue Moon of Kentucky. So those were his two first actual profitable singles of his, which were actually a massive, 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 massive hit. On my birthday, actually, July 8th, 1954, the local radio station WHBQ was given the single by Sam Phillips and was asked to play it on the radio station. So if anyone was anyone back in the day, they would be listening to WHBQ. This was like the number one uh, Memphis radio station to hear the top hits and to hear new singles as well. So they played this song. Hey, this is Elvis Presley, but that's all right. And they played the song and the switchboard was lighting up so crazily with people calling in to ask who who is this? Who is Elvis Presley? You know, or play it again. And this radio station was broadcast all over Tennessee. Like, so the whole entire state was hearing Elvis Presley for the very first time. And they were going nuts. They were like, who is this guy? He sounds amazing. Um, it was going so well that the host of WHBQ actually then asked Elvis to come down to the station and give an interview. Now, Elvis at the time was not aware that this was going to be an interview. He said later on in his life that if he had known this would have been an interview, he would have like try to um, give a little bit more energy because at the time Elvis was a shy guy. He was very shy. 
surprisingly enough, knowing what we know about Elvis, he was very shy, especially as he was first coming into himself. You know, he had stage fright and things. Um, all throughout, actually, his career, he had stage fright, surprisingly enough as well. Yeah, they interviewed him, and it went swimmingly. Elvis and his backing band were suddenly thrust into driving all over the state and in the Deep South to play shows. Now, what's funny is they only had that one record. They only had That's All Right and The Blue Moon of Kentucky. Those were the only songs that they had recorded, so that was all that they ever played on, on their gigs in these first early shows of theirs. But it's crazy because people were actually so enthralled with seeing them. And this is where we would see Elvis become something of like a godlike figure in a way. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, one of Elvis's most uh, well-known shows um, that was in his early career happened on October 16th, 1954, where Elvis and his band played at the Louisiana Hayride. This was broadcast out to 13 states around the South. So it was very, very, very successful and went really, really well. So it was so successful that the producers for the Louisiana Hayride had him signed to a year-long contract. And it was enough money that he could quit his trucking job and actually support himself and his family. So after a month of working at the Louisiana Hayride, on January 15, 1955, this is where he would meet record producer Colonel Tom Parker. So Colonel Tom Parker is a really weird person in the story because this is Elvis's, one of Elvis's managers. He would be his future manager at the time Elvis was managed by someone else. Um, but Colonel Tom Parker was like sinking his teeth into Elvis Presley really, really, really hard. So he said that he was a colonel, right? Tom Parker said that he was a colonel in the army. But he's a mystery. We know that he was Dutch. He came from the Netherlands, but we don't know how he made his way over to Tennessee. We don't know anything about him, but here he is trying to sink his teeth into Elvis Presley. Uh, he was really trying to get into his realm, and uh, he was pushing his other manager out of the picture to try to get himself in there because he could see Elvis was very profitable, but also Elvis was really popular with the ladies. He was having this like effect over the audience that he had never seen before. He would try in so many ways, actually, to get into Elvis's good graces. For example, uh, Tom Parker actually took 10K of his own money and bought Elvis a contract with RCA Records, right? RCA Victor was a huge record label at the time. This is where the big boys were playing, right? No more on little independent Sun Records, right? Sam Phillips of Sun Records said, listen, I needed the money. And this was profitable for not only me, but for Elvis. So I, I gave him over to RCA, no problem. There's an article clipping from 1956 that I just kind of wanted to share that I thought was interesting uh, how they viewed Elvis at the time. So this article said, the good looking youngster who combines country music with bop and the fastest selling style available will be sure to have the young uns, the youngins, from nine to 90 with him all the way. For a youngster catapulted from obscurity into a top-ranking spot on the Big Louisiana Hayride Show, Presley is remarkably pleasant and friendly. He's devoting what time he has to spare from his busy schedule to working on his car and indulging in his hobby of collecting pink and black clothes. So, November the 21st, 1955, Elvis signed the contract with RCA. And this is going to be big for him. They gave him a $5,000 advance, if you will, plus a guarantee that he'd play live on TV within 60 days. On January the 27th, 1956, 
This was the day that saw the release of one of his most popular singles called Heartbreak Hotel. I love this song. It's it's really good. This is an interesting story because when you hear him singing Heartbreak Hotel, it's almost very like sultry and seductive. But Heartbreak Hotel has a has a really serious kind of sad story behind it. This was originally written by two singers, two uh, singer songwriters called Tommy Durden and Mae Boren Axton, and they gave credit to Elvis as well. A newspaper article at this time about the suicide of a lonely man who drowned from a hotel window actually inspired the lyrics to Heartbreak Hotel. Mae Boren or Mae Boreen Axton, she wrote the song along with Tommy Durden, and she presented the song to Elvis Presley in November of 1955 at a country music convention in Nashville. Uh, so she hung out with him and she said, hey, you know, you're the up and coming new singer, you know, and you have an amazing voice. I wrote this song. What do you think about it? So she played the demo to him in his room at the Andrew Jackson Hotel. And he was like, hot dog, may I play that again. And so he would listen to the song 10 times. This The story goes memorizing the song. And he was like, yeah, so he accepted May's offer for a third of the royalties if he made the song his first single on his new label. And this would be the very first single from RCA that he would record for them, which was crazy. Now Elvis had this amazing song in his back pocket. So Elvis arrived at RCA Studios with the song ready to record. However, he didn't seek RCA's approval to do the song. He just said, well, I have a song. I don't need anyone's approval. Let's just do it. Producer Steve Scholes at the time was not sure that it would be a success. He recorded the song believing that Elvis knew what he was doing, so he didn't really ask questions. He just said, okay, whatever, you want to record this song, go for it. Almost immediately, Steve Scholes discovered a problem while recording Elvis. RCA Victor had always insisted that their performers stay as still as they possibly could as they sang into the microphone so that the microphone would pick up on the vocals as clearly as possible. I mean, this is the 50s we're talking about. This is very rudimentary technology <laughs> we're talking about here. This is not anything so advanced. So Elvis, as we know, he likes to move around and he likes to dance and he likes to wiggle his hips and things like that. And he said, listen, this is a problem for me because I like to dance. I like to jump around and sing it right. It's something that just happens. It's just part of the way that I sing. They built him something different for him. They rearranged the whole studio to be remiked so that Elvis's voice and guitar could be picked up from anywhere in the studio as he would swivel his hips and he would dance around. Uh, so that's really fascinating to me. So they totally rearranged everything so he could sing it how he wanted to sing it. And Elvis performed his single Heartbreak Hotel for the first time in Swifton, Arkansas on December 9th, 1955, and declared to the audience that it would be his very first hit, and he was right. This still remains one of his best songs to date. The single topped the Billboard Hot 100 for seven weeks, and it stayed at Cashbox's Pop Singles chart for six weeks as well, and the Country and Western chart for 17 weeks as well as reaching number three on the R&B chart, it became Elvis's first million seller and one of the best-selling singles of 1956. As per his contract with RCA, that said, we'll get you on TV within 60 days of signing. This is where his debut on TV would come in. On January the 28th, 1956, the day after Elvis would get his single, Heartbreak Hotel. Elvis sang to a national audience on TV on CBS's stage show. He was only 20 years old. He is making money moves here. The story goes that during one of Elvis's gigs, he was nervous, right? 
this is where it would start to come in with his wiggly dancing, right? So Elvis, little known fact, he had stage fright and he continued to have stage fright all of his life, right? So he would go up on stage for the very first time. And each time he would go up on stage, he was nervous. And he had this pent up energy, this nervous pent up energy and his legs would start moving. His legs would start bouncing up and down. And then as he felt the music and felt himself getting a little bit more comfortable, he would move his hips around or he would like, you know, shimmy his shoulders or he would stand on his tiptoes and things like that, you know. So he was wiggling about and the ladies in the audience were just screaming in a hormonal frenzy that this man before them was swinging and swiveling his hips unlike ever seen before by anyone else in the 50s or prior uh, so they were like, oh, my God, this man is so sexy. Oh, my God. So they were just going crazy. And this elicited a reaction. While it was a positive reaction, it also elicited a negative reaction from the men in the crowd. So during this performance, Elvis went to the backing band during an instrumental part of one of the songs they were performing. And he said, why are they screaming? Why, like, why are they hooting and hollering at me? What's going on here? And the band was like, it's the way that you're moving. It's, it's the wiggle. Just keep wiggling. Keep wiggling. And he's like, okay. So he keeps on wiggling, doing his little, you know, wiggle there. They would dub him in the papers as Elvis the Pelvis, which is so not original. But <laughs> that's what they would dub him as. Uh, so there's so much controversy, right, that surrounds his sex appeal and his dance moves that would be really, really, really interesting. I mean, it's one thing where you had the girls in the audience that were just fun all over him, but then you had the males in the audience that would be like, how dare you? You are seducing my young teenage daughter with your pelvis, with your dance moves, with your shimmying of the shoulders. How dare you? This would cause a negative um, connotation on Elvis, and this would give him a bad reputation. It would actually get so dire that during one of his concerts in Jacksonville, Florida in 1956, a judge gave a preemptive arrest warrant for Elvis for impairing the morals of minors. The judge justified the restrictions by saying that Elvis's music was undermining the youth of America by essentially just getting up there and wiggling his hips. I mean, this isn't anything, you know, extremely serious here. It's not like he was pole dancing or stripping in front of everybody. Throughout this Jacksonville, Florida performance, Elvis stood as was ordered, but he poked fun at the judge by wiggling his pinky finger, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, so this is just crazy how this goes about. I mean, listen, it's really actually fascinating how this point in history, in music history, but also, I guess, in history in general, Elvis was starting a, a sexual revelation or liberation of sorts, if you will, because nothing had ever been done like this before. I mean, people back then were very prude. If you wouldn't mind me saying that, they were prude back in the day, okay? They did not care to talk about sex or men and women getting it on or anything like that. They did not care about any of that. They wanted their women to be virginal angels and innocent angels. And they had the double standards for men that men could go out and whore and do all they wanted to do. But the women, God forbid, they needed to be pure for marriage and save themselves for Jesus and all that other stupid shit. And so when Elvis comes along and he's the most handsome man that anyone has ever seen in their life and he's wiggling his hips on stage getting the pent-up nervous energy out of him and the girls are going crazy for him clawing at him trying to get a piece of him the guys in the audience are like what the hell is happening to our women our women my daughter my girlfriend my wife uh-uh this ain't happening how dare this man come through with his sex appeal wiggling his pelvis uh-uh we're gonna lock this guy down we can't do this 
Think of the children. Society is crumbling before us because this man is wiggling his hips on stage. God forbid. Unbelievable. During a homecoming show in Tupelo, Mississippi, 100 National Guardsmen surrounded the stage as Elvis performed to stop a riot from breaking out. I mean, this is actually insanity. Like, this is simply just a young man with some hips and he's wiggling his hips. I mean, it's, it's literally just nothing more than that, but that's the sexual prowess that Elvis had at the time. Without Elvis breaking through these doors, we wouldn't have the Beatles. You think of the Beatles when they came in America and they were bobbing around on stage and swinging their Beatles haircuts. And the fathers and the men were like, oh my God, these men are corrupting our daughters with their Beatle haircuts. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, but this is what it was. The norm back then was to be straight as an arrow, to, to not be, to not over exude yourself and to not make a scene to walk the line, if you will. And Elvis was like, I'm walking my line, but it's like in a curved line, you know? <laughs> I'm walking to the beat of my own drum, so this is just insane. Just to show you guys the absolute variety of uh, reactions that people were eliciting, actually back in the day, I have three article clippings from various points in time here, just to show, again, the variety of some uh, liking the dancing and some absolutely despising the dancing. So the first one I have is from an article in the Daily Oklahoma newspaper from April 1956. And the writer says, as his show starts, he leaps out onto the stage with a guitar slung over his shoulders and hunkers at the microphone animal fashion. As he sings, he wiggles and bounces every limb, stands on his toes, crouches as if he is about to leap out into the audience, waves his hands in the air and sways backward and forward. To those not familiar with the rock and roll rage, he appears to be having some sort of seizure, but the teenagers love it. As he gyrated about the stage Thursday night, his audience danced in the idols, trembled as if in a trance, screamed until they were hoarse. The second one I have is from the Lakeland Ledger on August in 1956. They say, his contortions are vulgar, and his quivering, high-strung, nervous style of singing is a long way from being high-class art. Let the teenagers squeal, scream, and moan over Presley, the fad for a day. They'll be grown-up people with grown-up responsibilities within a few years. Those who have been given a proper sense of values at home will not be wrecked by Presley. And then the last one I have is from the Vancouver Sun in August 1957. This is probably the most savage one that I could find. It's hardly original, but if any daughter of mine broke out of the woodshed tonight to see Elvis Presley in the Empire Stadium, I'd kick her teeth in. From his tawdry green stage on the 50-yard line of Spokane's Memorial Stadium, an obscenity penetrated the crowd like an electric spark jumping a gap. When he shook one pant leg, they screamed like jets, these fresh-faced girls of this pleasant Wheatland city. When he shook both pant legs, they screamed and quivered and shut their eyes. And when he did the most grotesque and imbecilic things with his body, they screamed and quivered and shut their eyes and reached out their hands to him as if for salvation. It is a frightening thing for a man to watch his women debase themselves. I'm just going to leave that there and let that soak in with you guys, all right? <laughs> That's crazy. In July 1956, his other amazing single, Hound Dog, was released. Now, this is probably 
one that is the most talked about when it comes to Elvis and his correlation to black artists because the song Hound Dog was originally done by a singer named Big Mama Thornton in 1953. Her recording of Hound Dog is credited with helping to spur the evolution of black R&B into rock music. Hers was different. Hers was a bit more of a slower pace. And this song was first covered by a white band called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys, the most white sounding band of the time you could probably ever imagine hearing. So Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys was the first one to record this song in 1955. Where does Elvis Presley come into the story with this? Well, Elvis and his band first encountered the song Hound Dog at the Sands Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1956. They were there playing a couple of shows, and Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys were also there. They were still the resident act at this casino, specifically at the Silver Queen Bar, and Hound Dog was a staple for them because they were the first ones to cover this song, and everyone was loving it, so it was a part of their repertoire. So while Elvis and the boys were there listening to this, they were, you know, attending the performance, and they really loved Freddie and the Bell Boys how they kind of did their burlesque, if you will, reworking of the sound hound dog. And according to a man named Paul W. Papa at the time, from the first time Elvis heard this song, he was hooked. He went back over and over again until he learned the chords and the lyrics. So Elvis was like totally amazed by this song. He was aghast and he just needed to record this right away. Obviously, though, Elvis was very much so aware of Big Mama Thornton's original recording of Hound Dog, and he appreciated it so much. He appreciated it so much that he had a copy of the song in his personal record collection, but he would pay homage to all of these black artists um, that he would cover songs from. It was Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys' performance of the song that influenced Elvis's decision to perform anyway, and later record and release his own version. It would be said that Elvis's version of Hound Dog came about not as an attempt to cover Thornton's record, but as an imitation of a parody of her record performed by Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys. The words, the tempo, and the arrangement of Elvis's Hound Dog came not from Thornton's version of the song, but from the Bell Boys. So that's very important to note there as well. So I kind of wanted to just jump uh, into a little bit and dive deep into Elvis and his correlation to black music because it's a massive theme throughout Elvis's career, and it still is a, a well-talked about point of contention you know, did Elvis build his career off the back of black artists or not? Was he simply just there to take inspiration and he adored and admired them? Let's see. So in spite of the fact that Nat King Cole had the number seven song in 1959 and the number one song in 61, and Chuck Berry obviously had a major hit called Maybelline in 1955, the U.S. at the time in the 50s, right, they obviously were very in deep with segregation, legal segregation, and discrimination and prejudice, right, against African-American people. It was very common, obviously, especially in the Deep South, uh, of course, obviously. Elvis, of course, was aware of this as well. He lived in the Deep South, and he, he was raised around a lot of black friends and black neighbors that would just sit on their stoop and would play guitar, you know, play blues music, you know, and things like that. Elvis would nevertheless publicly cite his debt to African-American music, pointing to artists like B.B. King, Arthur Crudup, Ivory Joe Hunter, and Fats Domino, and obviously people like Lil Richard and uh, Chuck Berry and others. The reporter who conducted Elvis's first interview in New York City in 1956 noted that he named blues singers who obviously meant a lot to him. 
He was very surprised to hear him talk about the black performers down there and about how he tried to carry on their music. Later in Charlottesville, North Carolina, Elvis was quoted as saying, This, the colored folks been singing it and playing it just like I'm doing now, man, for more years than I know. They played it like that in their shanties and in their juke joints and nobody paid it no mind till I goosed it up. I got it from them down in Tupelo, Mississippi. I used to hear old Arthur Cruda bang his box the way I do now. I said, if I ever get to a place I could feel all old Arthur felt, I'd be a music man like nobody ever saw. Little Richard said of Elvis Presley, he was an integrator. Elvis was a blessing. They wouldn't let black music through. He opened the door for black music. And B.B. King himself said that he began to respect Elvis after he did Arthur Crudup's material and said that after he met Elvis, he thought Elvis was really something else. And he was someone whose music was growing all the time right up to his death. Not only was he taking inspiration from black artists, and he was very well aware that, you know, how it was back then in the day where they would not get a leg up uh, in the music, even though a lot of black musicians had their singles in the charts, they would still not get the proper respect and admiration that they had so deserved. Elvis took inspiration from them and he loved them and he cherished them because that's what he grew up on. That's what he was influenced by. You know, and he thought to himself, well, this is amazing and this is, you know, something that I would be so inspired and so amazed and so honored to go and give them a leg up, if you will. And then black artists themselves would credit Elvis so much with breaking the door open to give way for more black artists to come through after him. In August 1956, Elvis released his single Love Me Tender. So Love Me Tender was actually the very first movie that he would do. Elvis was starting to do movies at this time. Love Me Tender, the single, obviously was for the film. Love Me Tender was actually an adaptation of an 1861 Civil War song by the name of Aura Lee, but it later became popular with barbershop quartets. A man named Ken Darby was the principal writer of the song who also adapted the original song called Aura Lee, uh, and Elvis received co-writing credits with Ken Darby. Ken Darby described Elvis's role in the creation of the song as this. He adjusted the music and the lyrics to his own particular presentation. Elvis has the most terrific ear of anyone I have ever met. He does not read music, but he does not need to. All I had to do was play the song for him once, and he made it his own. He has perfect judgment of what is right for him. He exercised that judgment when he chose Love Me Tender as his theme song. So as we're coming into kind of the end, the later portion here of the 50s, we are so ingrained in Elvis with what he was doing to society. He was becoming a household name. While he was popular with a lot of teens and the youth of the time, he was also equally unpopular. And people at the time were so against uh, having him play at their venues some djs would literally like smash his records and say we're not playing this music we're not playing elvis's music ed sullivan at the time he was one of the major what would you call him hosts musical hosts um he had his own tv show obviously we know him as bringing on the beatles and introducing them in america in 1964 ed sullivan has a lot of sway over the american people because people watch him right so Ed Sullivan declared that he would never have Elvis on his show, ever, simply because of the fact that he was corrupting the youth with his pelvis. Stupid, but that's true. Ed Sullivan would actually turn over a new leaf by September of 1956, where Elvis was actually making 
an appearance on a show. Uh, one of the things that actually helped Elvis gain a favorable reputation with the American people was this Ed Sullivan show performance, but also the fact that Elvis took it upon his own right to give an interview at this time where he would explain to himself how he thought the music I'm doing and the moves I'm doing are not delinquency. It, it, it has nothing to do with anything bad or negative. I'm just here doing my thing and I don't understand the negative backlash, right? So people were starting to, at some point, you know, come around to Elvis being a good kid. And this would be very important by the Ed Sullivan performance that he did, where at the end of Elvis's performance on the Ed Sullivan show, Ed comes through at the end and he gives an unprompted message to Elvis directly and to the American audience watching, where Ed Sullivan says, this kid Elvis is one of the most polite, nice kids, and he's a good, decent, okay boy. You know, he's one of the nicest kids that we've ever had the pleasure of having on this program. Ed Sullivan actually helped Elvis break through to the American people and actually make him lovable by everybody. At this point now, Elvis was so successful, he was finally making enough money that landed him in the top 1%, which was nice. He made at the time about $50,000 per night that he would do a gig in. And he finally had the means of taking care of his parents. He already bought them a small house in Memphis as he was getting bigger. But now that he had a lot of money, he was buying Cadillacs. He at one time had, I believe, six to seven Cadillacs that he had in his own collection and that he would readily give Cadillacs out to people. Um, but he purchased a plot of land in the country called Graceland. He did not name this. It was named Graceland already. Um, but he purchased Graceland at an auction for only $100,000 for him and his parents and his grandmother to live in. So Elvis is now beloved by everybody. He is now making enough money to support himself and his family at Graceland. He has at this time made three to four films, roughly about three films. And we obviously know Jailhouse Rock was one of his most popular films, but also one of his most popular songs. So he was just coming through with hit after hit at this time. Uh, Jailhouse Rock peaked at number three on the Variety box office chart and reached number 14 for the year. So essentially, Jailhouse Rock was meant to just be like a silly, goofy song. It wasn't meant to be anything serious, you know. But Elvis sang it pretty straight, and he wanted to make sure that he got his dance moves accurate as possible because um, he was nervous about this. He hit it out of the park. He did an amazing job. But by December 1957, Elvis got a knock on the door from Uncle Sam, and he was drafted into the military. You could have your view of this of one of two ways. You can either believe that his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, suggested he go into the army to help reshape his image to the public by presenting as a good, clean-cut, all-American boy. Or you could take it to the fact that Elvis didn't want to back away from going and doing his duty in the American army and he wanted to do it of his own volition. So you could either believe he was forced into doing it or he wanted to do it of his own volition. Either way, though, he went. Thousands of fan letters were flooding the military offices, begging for Elvis to be exempt from the draft. They thought this was like the worst possible thing that could ever happen. In March the 24th, 1958, Elvis got his hair cut in front of all the cameras. I'm just like every other guy getting drafted into the military, and they made a big hoo-ha about it because they cut his hair in front of the cameras and took a million pictures, and he said that was the shortest his hair had ever been because he, at the time, was rocking the sideburns and the long hair. He also started basic training for the military. 
This would be a massive turning point in Elvis's life for the fact of the matter that his mother, who was always extremely, extremely severely overprotective of her one surviving child, was going off to the military. His mother, Gladys, was already starting to dive deeper into her um, alcoholic uh, tendencies, her alcoholic tendencies. She was not okay. She was getting very, very, very sick. All her life, she looked over Elvis with like a, a watchful eye and she kept a strong hold of him and her one surviving son, you know, she already lost one. She didn't want to lose another son. And the thought of him going to the military really sent her under and uh, she developed hepatitis. Tragically, while Elvis was in basic training, while he was finishing up his basic training, she died. Very, 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 very unfortunate that um, his mother was to die, and he was only 23 years old, so very, very tragic. There was nothing that he could do. He couldn't mourn or grieve in the way that everyone could naturally grieve. He went home to Graceland. Uh, he got leave from the military, and he went back to Graceland, and he got pictures taken with his father on the steps of Graceland, like crying and giving a little interview and things. It was like absolutely insane. He could not grieve like any normal son would, would grieve, but then he had to go back into the military. So there was nothing else that he could do about it. He had to just brush the dirt off of his shoulders and straighten up and move on. Something that I thought was really kind of ingenious of Tom Parker was uh, he made sure that Elvis recorded a wide number of singles and music before Elvis left for his two years in the military. A big fear for Elvis was that he would be forgotten by the public if he were to leave for two years um, and then come back. And he thought, no one would want to hear me anymore. This is done for me. No one would remember me. Tom Parker made sure that Elvis recorded a lot of singles beforehand so that they could be incrementally, slowly trickled out, released into the public uh, to make it appear like Elvis was never gone in the first place, right? While overseas, that was happening back home. Elvis was in the military for two years. Okay, so two things happened here. Two things happened to Elvis while he was in the military that would change his life forever. He first started learning karate, which you might think, why is that important? Well, because if you see him in his later performances, especially in the 70s, you see Elvis kicking and flailing around on stage and his jumpsuits predominantly actually were inspired by, you know, the karate outfits he would wear but also the dance moves he would do were karate moves. <laughs> Elvis uh, loved karate and he learned uh, from a German instructor while he was over in Germany and he absolutely adored it. But then also while in Germany in September of 1959, Elvis was to meet the young Priscilla Beaulieu. She was the daughter of an Air Force captain and it was almost like serendipity that the two were to meet. Priscilla was 14, I should mind you, and Elvis was 24, so he was 10 years older than her. So, obviously, they were aware of this predicament. There wasn't a whole lot that they could obviously do legally. Obviously, it goes without saying. But they formed a very tight, strong relationship. And Priscilla would say that Elvis intrinsically trusted her and opened up to her about struggles he was dealing with and things he was thinking about. He just implicitly trusted her. So he would wave goodbye to her at the airport when he left, and she thought to herself, I might never see this man again, but they absolutely really loved each other. At the time, Elvis had a girlfriend waiting for him back home, 
that's very Elvis-like. Uh, that's just how he is. He could never be a one-woman type of man. He always had to just be involved with all the ladies because he was a woman's man for sure. You know, Priscilla would be the one wife he would ever have in his life. And Elvis left to go back home on March the 2nd, 1960. So Elvis was welcomed home with open arms by everybody. And they never, of course, forgot him. How could they ever forget Elvis? And he did a press conference immediately in Graceland when he came back home and kind of like debriefed everyone on what happened and what was going to happen in the future. Um, a few weeks later, he would make and release the album called Elvis is Back. So then at this point, now it's the 60s. Now we're seeing Elvis shift slightly into a different person because he initially was doing a couple of really good films prior to his time in the military. And then he did a lot of films in the 60s that were like teeny bopper films. Elvis liked some of them. A point in time, Elvis despised a lot of these films because they would be one in the same. And he said he would get so engrossed over the fact that these scripts were not good, he would get physically ill over these scripts because he did not want to do them. I would say two of the films that were the biggest for him that remained popular that he did were Blue Hawaii, which featured the massive hit Can't Help Falling in Love. And that was obviously for the soundtrack. The second film that he did in the 60s in this time that would be his most famous as well was Viva Las Vegas, where he would meet the beautiful Anne Margaret and she would actually develop a relationship with Elvis. Two of them were very attached at the hip and he was in awe of her and she was in awe of him and they loved each other. However, Elvis was betrothed to Priscilla. So there was nothing that could be done with that there, but they had a very hot and heavy type of relationship and Margaret and Elvis did uh, from that film. And of course, as well as doing films, he obviously made his own albums as well, as well as film soundtracks for the films that he would do. So he was coming out with song after song after song after album after album after film after film. I mean, he was just going for it. Also, at this time in 1965, he were to meet the Beatles, which is an amazing colliding of two worlds, you know, because if you think about it, you know, back in the 50s, Elvis was overtaking the world uh, and at the time in England in the 50s the teddy boy movement was happening that was directly modeled off of people like Elvis. Elvis inspired their music and so when the two of them got to meet it was like oh my god world's colliding this is insane like oh my god wow so it, it was funny they they met and I might have to dive deep into that story maybe another time, but they met essentially and they jammed together and it was really cute and it was fun. Uh, Elvis was really hip to the fact that new and up and coming artists and bands were coming into the limelight and he was like, that's cool. I would be kind of silly to not move as well with the times. He was open to new people coming in. Elvis would eventually settle down and all the girls would cry <laughs> hysterically because he did eventually marry Priscilla in Las Vegas, May of 1967 at, I believe, the Aladdin Hotel from my recollection. And it's funny because only roughly about 14 people actually attended the wedding ceremony, but nearly 200 people and camera crew showed up for the reception and press conference. Yeah, they had a press conference at their wedding. Um, but they got married, and then a year later, their daughter, their one and only daughter, Lisa Marie, was born. 
So, while a lot of things was happening for Elvis at this time, he was married, he now had a daughter, he was making film after film after film, he was making hit after hit after hit, he was becoming so famous, um, he had just a plethora of money, he was expanding upon Graceland and like changing the interior and doing all these other things, he was giving away Cadillacs <laughs> to people around him, he just was absorbing all of the limelight and having fun with it. At the same time, there was also a negative aspect to it because, again, he wasn't a fan of a lot of the films he was doing. He was starting to become a bit burnt out by this time. And in the 60s, he had never once actually a sang uh, live to an audience. The last time he sang to a live audience was in the 50s before he left for the military, if you can believe that. And he missed that a lot. So he was trying to think to himself, how can he get back to form? Um, not only that, but the 60s also seemed to be the time where Elvis and his eating disorder started to take shape. People would notice that he would overindulge um, and he had a compulsion to overeat junk food and things like that. Junk food became like a crutch for him. Food became like an emotional support for him throughout the rest of his life. And I can imagine that because he was going through a lot. You know, he genuinely didn't have a lot of good people around him that cared about him. And a lot of friends that cared about him. He had a lot of yes men and a lot of fleeting relationships, but no one that really cared genuinely about him aside from his, uh, well, I, sh I was about to say aside from his parents. But to be honest, his father Vernon was taking a back seat and was letting things happen to his son. That shouldn't have happened. I'm just being honest. Elvis was just spiraling into uh, his food and then drugs. He would then take his prescription pills and painkillers and things. It was just kind of becoming overwhelming. And also after the birth of Lisa Marie, the marriage between Priscilla and Elvis was actually starting to take a turn for the worse. And Elvis started cheating uh, left, right and center. Obviously, like I said, he could not just be a one woman man. He had to have all the women <laughs> ever. You know, it was difficult and Elvis was really aware that he needed to change for the better because he missed live music and he missed interacting with the people. It was at this point in 1968 that Colonel Tom Parker made a deal with NBC to do a one hour Christmas special. Elvis didn't want to do that. OK, he did not want to do a one hour Christmas special and be like a one trick pony. He wanted to really, really get back to his roots and do what he always wanted to do, which was singing and performing to a live audience the songs that he wanted to sing. Not a Christmas song, not a Christmas special. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. The ever-famous 1968 comeback special was born, and this is where it's so iconic, the comeback special. If you haven't seen it, hello. It's one of the best specials I think that I've ever seen musically. It's amazing. Elvis looked in his best form. He looked amazing, but he also donned the famous two-piece leather outfit that he would wear that made him look so handsome. And he sang a lot of his old tunes from back in the day on Son Records and then with RCA and then some of the new stuff that he did. Um, it's interesting because the special had one facet was like a MTV unplugged sort of thing that was just strictly acoustic with his vocal. And then another aspect was a bit of a theatrical uh, thing where he would do uh, like dance numbers or like theatrical numbers that was almost like an homage to some of the films that he would do. And then the one quote unquote Christmas song that he would do for the special came at the very end where he donned his famous white suit and he sang the song If I Can Dream. This was one of his 
most prolific songs because it was very it was very serious. It was one of the first serious songs that he ever did. And over 42% of the nation tuned in to watch this special. It became absolutely iconic. So another song that came about uh, after the 68 comeback special was Suspicious Minds. I love this song. This would become one of his famous in his repertoire. Suspicious Minds was written and first recorded by a man named Mark James. After his recording failed commercially, it was then cut by Elvis. And Elvis's rendition became a number one song in 1969 and was the most memorable hit of Elvis's career. Suspicious Minds was one of the singles that revived Elvis's chart success in the U.S. following his 68 comeback special. It was his 18th and last number one single in the U.S., surprisingly enough. So the 68 comeback special really revived Elvis's love of performing live to an audience, and it, it, it bit him. You know, he got the bug again to actually perform, and this is where we would see the new Elvis be reborn as what we know him to be now with the jumpsuits and the flashy Las Vegas shows and the dancing and this, that, and the other. Like, the long hair and the sideburns even longer and bigger. Um, this is where we would then see him take on this new form. Elvis just really wanted to get back in touch with the people in the audience and connect with them. So this is where he would start his residency at the International Hotel in Las Vegas. While this was great initially, because Elvis genuinely wanted to be there for the fans, it then became something that would keep him almost like a, a dog locked in a cage, almost like a ball and chain on him because he was then forced to doing it. It wasn't like at the beginning where he willingly wanted to do it. He then almost became locked into a deal that he could not escape from because Tom Parker cut a deal with some really high up there echelon people, uh, the industry and with the Las Vegas Hotel where Elvis would be locked into a five-year contract where he would get paid a million dollars and Tom Parker took a lot of that money for himself. It just became a really big, messy thing. And Elvis would love performing. He loved performing to the crowd. I mean, I watched a couple of his performances before I recorded this podcast over the week. He is so magnanimous. He is easily one of the best, most amazing live performers I've ever seen in my life. He is so incredible. He feels the music. He is almost like a conductor up there on stage. He feels the music flow through him. He loves being up there. He loves the music and he loves having fun with the audience. He makes jokes up there. Like he just has a ball with it. And not even, let me just say this. He goes up there and he kisses so many of the ladies in the crowd or he takes their handkerchiefs and like pats himself dry because he's sweating profusely with the lights and the jumpsuits. Like it's just absolutely insane to me. But only Elvis could go up and kiss every single woman in the crowd and and not be canceled. Because if that were to happen today, Elvis would be canceled. But listen, he was a performer. He loved giving the performance of a lifetime. He saw it as this. He saw it as it was a new, fresh audience every time. And that he thought to himself, well, this person in the audience has never seen me play before. So it's almost like he's singing to a new crowd every night for the first time and he would get nervous every time. Isn't it crazy that someone like him would have stage fright? But it's true. He did all throughout his life. So that it's just I'm just giving this information to say in the beginning, he actually thoroughly enjoyed doing this. But then it became a point where he was locked and loaded into this contract and he could not break out of it. 
By the way, his entire career, Elvis wanted to go to Europe and tour Europe because he always had a fascination. You know, he only saw Europe for the minimal parts he could in, in the war, but he wanted to go out and explore Europe, see it for himself, not just in like textbooks or in history books. He wanted to see the world for himself, but because Colonel Tom Parker didn't have a passport and he was lying about who he was, he didn't let Elvis leave the country. So Elvis literally was kept like a dog in a cage in America, particularly at the Las Vegas International Hotel. That's where Elvis lived. That's where Elvis breathed. That's where Elvis performed. Obviously, he had Graceland, but the International Hotel kind of became like his ball and chain. That's the important thing to know here. So just kind of backing up a little bit in time here. When Elvis committed to returning to live concert performances in 1969, he needed to recruit you know, backup singers and performers and musicians, obviously. Um, and he had orchestras with him and things like that. Like, you know, he needed a new core rhythm group and things like he was really big on trying to arrange the instruments and the music and the vocals and everything. It was really fascinating to watch. The new players would eventually become known as the TCB Band, which is known as Taking Care of Business. And this was the slogan that Elvis had adopted for his personal and professional business life. It's the TCB with the lightning bolt in it. Basically, it means taking care of business in a flash. I don't think they were truly his friends because they didn't really care for him. They were just kissing his ass because he was Elvis Presley. Some of them, I think, did care, but some of them didn't at the same time. I'm just being honest. I don't think a lot of them had Elvis's health as number one priority. They just saw him as dollar signs. Elvis's first live concert engagement was to be a four-week run at the new International Hotel beginning on July 31st, 1969. It just became really dire of a situation because not only was he stuck to this deal that he couldn't escape from, he also then had his tendencies to overeat and overindulge and then he had his addictions to pain meds and his painkillers that would be the end of him. By Christmas 1970, he used some of his money to spend $100,000 on 32 handguns and 10 Mercedes, by the way. This just goes to show like how larger than life he was and how exuberant he lived a lavish life. He loved handguns. He loved guns. He had like a wide array of guns and cars. Those were his two things, cars and guns. He also decided that he wanted to meet the president, who at the time was Richard Nixon who was a bastard, but <laughs> we're not going into President uh, Richard Nixon. But anyway, he wanted to meet a Richard Nixon. Uh, he apparently was so grateful that Nixon gave him a badge from the FBI Department of Narcotics, Nixon did. Nixon was so grateful that the Elvis Presley came to meet him that he said, here, have this badge. Elvis actually would collect police officer badges from his shows over the years that were given to him as gifts from officers. Elvis just was becoming bigger and larger than life in the 70s as well it just became a new he became a new person but because of the fact that he was away from home all the time from his daughter and his wife priscilla he was heavily involved in the drugs and in the rock and roll lifestyle and the cheating again the cheating was prolific hello every single concert he would kiss i could i couldn't even keep count 10 plus women every single woman wanted a piece of him i mean talk about sloppy seconds jesus christ so so gross but that's what they did back in the day. Um, that's what he did. He just could not be a one-woman man. And Priscilla knew this, by the way. Priscilla knew this was happening. And she loved him so much. 
but the drugs and all of this drove a wedge between them. And in February of 1972, Elvis and Priscilla divorced. Elvis was distraught. Some say that it was his ego that was hurt because Priscilla was the one that left him and not him leaving her. I think he truly obviously loved Priscilla. The fact that he was cheating obviously was difficult, but I think he loved Priscilla. The weird thing about the cheating, by the way, was he wouldn't always sleep with these women. Like, he had an actual fear of getting these ladies pregnant. So while he would do uh, things with them, I think it was for most of the time just to be in someone's company, to be in a woman's company. He always wanted to find his, the love of his life, his soulmate, the one woman that would understand him and love him and care for him, similarly to what his mother did, right? So he was trying to fill a void. Uh, and so when Priscilla divorced him, he just spiraled down even further into a pit of despair and drugs food and yeah not good at all he was already heavily dependent on drugs to keep him going and living and waking and breathing but yeah it was not not good at all by 1975 he was living almost like a recluse in graceland uh, not good at all he would sleep during the day and would be awake during the early morning hours and all of the girlfriends that were with him at this time like one of his girlfriends linda thompson she she loved him and some of the other ones um you know, knew this about him, that he would sleep during the day and would be awake during the early morning hours. And uh, also he had a round-the-clock nurse and doctor that would look after him and deliver packages of painkillers and narcotics to him to help him sleep and get through each and every single day. It was literally living on borrowed time for Elvis in the 70s, at this point in the mid-late 70s because he would not be alive much longer. It just, it's really sad to see him fatter and fatter and fatter and bigger. And I feel bad for him with that too, because apparently it's in his family history, this thing about like water retention. And clearly he was very bloated and he was overweight. By 1977, he was apparently about 200 or so pounds. So he was not the trim Elvis Presley that we all know and love him to be. You know, he was going out on stage in his jumpsuits, you know, looking not at his peak, let's just say that. But the man just, I feel bad for him. I just wanted to leave this one article interview that I think speaks volumes. The person that wrote this article was actually at an Elvis concert uh, a year before he would pass away. And so I just wanted to leave this because it says a lot. There can be no denying that the man still has his voice, but for Presley, it all seems to be a chore. His self-indulgence has grown along with his waistline. He talks to the band during the numbers, slurs lyrics, and lethargically wiggles his hips, resembling a dinosaur and a tar pit. Elvis is in danger of carrying self-parody to a tedious extreme. The pity is, he may now be at his peak and not really care. He probably felt very alone and he would try to fill the void with women and girlfriends and love. And the thing is, he was very giving, though. He gave everyone cars and clothes and jewelry and this, that and the third. Like he just gave them everything. It's almost like he was to say, please don't leave me. Get like stay with me. It's sad. It's really, really, really sad. I mean... During the last year of his life, he was spending time with his then-girlfriend, Ginger Alden, who at the time was about 20 years old and he was 42, which, yikes! But, um, you know, he always had an affinity, I think, for the younger girls, because Priscilla was 10 years younger than him. But 
While she didn't live at Graceland permanently, she did sleep there all the time, very often, uh, and so she would notice Elvis's habits a lot. I don't think she really was that prolific in trying to care for him, but how, I mean, I suppose how could she? She's about 20 years old, looking after a 42-year-old man who is strung out on drugs, having some kind of temper, like the drugs would give him a temper. The drugs would either make him one way or another way. It could never just be the straight down the narrow middle of the road Elvis Presley. It had to be either Elvis with a bit of a temper or Elvis groggy and all that stuff. The drugs would make him think and act not like his normal self, right? Unfortunately, Ginger and all of his girlfriends and even his friends and bandmates became accustomed to living almost kind of on edge, I guess, if you will. Uh, to not upset Elvis. But listen, this is the thing. Elvis needed help and he didn't get it. Elvis would perform on stage for the last time on June 26, 1977 at the Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. So this performance is tragic because he looks so bloated and tired, exhausted, horrible. He looks so bad, but he sings his heart and soul out the music never left him. One of the songs that he sings at the end of the show is Unchained Melody, an unbelievably sad but beautiful song. He sings his absolute heart and soul out. It makes me cry whenever I hear it and see it. It's just, it's just really sad. And uh, Elvis would die two months later on August the 16th, 1977. The last day goes like this. Elvis went up and he woke up from bed and he went to use the restroom, as you do. And Ginger had told him from the room, like, hey, don't fall asleep while you're in there. Because apparently this would be a thing for him, you know, while he was doing his normal everyday thing. Like, you know, eating dinner, for example, you know, he would fall asleep. Uh, you know, make sure Elvis doesn't fall asleep doing his normal things, you know, because of the drugs and things. You know, she wasn't going to look after him and make sure, you know, he was okay. She just said, hey, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep in there. And apparently the last words he said were, I won't. He brought a spiritual book in there with him and he was in there. So she went about her day and she fell asleep, uh, apparently not knowing that Elvis was still in the restroom. And she woke up a few hours later. She didn't see Elvis and she thought, well, that's not abnormal. So whatever. But she didn't think to like knock on the bathroom door or anything like that. She just went about her day, did her hair and makeup she then was like, wait a minute, this is not right. Where is Elvis here? She finally then decides to check the bathroom. And it was here that she found him on the floor. And she went to look in his eyes and apparently they were bloodshot red. And uh, he did not look good, obviously. He was taken to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. He was 42 years old. And the world, I think, has never fully recovered from his death. People still think that they see him here, there, and everywhere. Elvis is not really dead. He's alive somewhere. Oh, Elvis faked his death. Stupid things like that. I mean, listen, some fans are in denial. They'd want to be in denial that their favorite person's not actually dead, that they're alive somewhere living their life and that they just wanted a break. Elvis was tired. He was very exhausted. He was running on borrow time and the universe thought that Elvis needed to permanently rest. Poor man, just... Just a sad, sad story. I want to leave it with this quote that Elvis himself said that is my most favorite quote he's ever said. I think this is so prolific. So he said this quote at an award ceremony. He was given an award for being one of the 10 most outstanding young men of the nation. So this is part of the speech that he gave in 1971. 
When I was a child, ladies and gentlemen, I was a dreamer. I read comic books and I was the hero of the comic book. I saw movies and I was the hero in the movie. So every dream I ever dreamed has come true a hundred times. I learned that very early in life that without a song, the day would never end. Without a song, a man ain't got a friend. Without a song, the road would never bend. Without a song. So I keep singing a song. Good night. Thank you. Ain't that just the most like prolific thing that you ever have heard in your life? At least me. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the Elvis Presley podcast episode. I am just in disbelief, honestly, how his life took such an interesting turn and he died in such a way that was so remedial. Like he died at his home in Graceland. I'm at least, I guess, glad he died in Graceland at his home and not out on the road somewhere or in a hotel somewhere or whatever. Very sad. You know, he... I think he needs to get a lot more credit in this day and age for being iconic and legendary and inspiring so many musicians there after him. We would not have the Beatles if it weren't for Elvis, and we would not have all these other musicians today that we love if it weren't for Elvis. It's funny to me because I learned this. He never actually wrote any of his songs. He got... 50% of the songwriting credits for a lot of the songs that were for him, but he never actually wrote uh, any of his songs. So considering the fact that in his entire music career, he never wrote a single song, that he had the most successful music career and most prolific music career out of like anyone in rock history. I mean, it's crazy. People were in awe of him. People adored him. People loved him. People wanted to be him. People wanted to be with him. People were inspired by him. People were fascinated by him. He became the king, (laughs) the king of rock and roll. I just think it's important that we strip away of the glitz and glamour of him and we just remember that he was a man that came from humble beginnings in Tupelo, Mississippi, and he had a dream and he had a passion and he was different than everyone else, but he was a caring, kind, compassionate, gentle man. Funny as well. He was so funny, by the way. Really funny. That just wanted to share his gift with the world and embrace life, be happy, and find the woman of his dreams to love him forever and have a family. He did with Priscilla and Lisa Marie, but like they divorced, right? He just wanted that forever love and he got that i think from his fans and his audience so he just wanted to be adored by everybody but as sad as his story may end you know with him dying in the bathroom which is really sad i think we need to stop perpetuating the whole oh elvis presley wasn't he the one that died in the bathroom like that's so demeaning it's just like i think we need to give him more props we need to we need to give him more respect If anything comes from this episode, I hope that you guys listen to more of his music or watch some of his performances and just admire him because he's amazing. I have a newfound respect for him and I will, I think, forever be an Elvis fan now, which is crazy. The turnaround there, the 180 for me there on Elvis, but I I really, I like him a lot. He's great. Um, So thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed. Have an amazing an amazing, amazing, amazing day, amazing week, and I will see you guys next Wednesday for another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.